Amen. Good morning, Grace Hill. How are you? It's good to see you. My name's Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Hill Church. So if I haven't met you, uh, would love to be able to connect with you uh, after the service. If you have a Bible, go ahead, get that open to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, we'll be reading from that uh, in just a little bit. It's in the New Testament. You'll have a, a few minutes to go uh, and find that. But hey, so I'm going to be honest with you, like today is a little bit awkward for me. Uh, and the reason is because I, we have to have a little bit of a DTR this morning, you and me. Um, a, a define the relationship conversation uh, between me and the role that I play in this church alongside others, the pastors, elders, shepherds of the church, and the rest of the church body as the people of the church. Now, we don't need to have this conversation because anything's going on or there's like family business to tend to. No, it's, it's because where we are in the scripture this morning is going to necessitate that we have this conversation, all right? So as you know, we're in a sermon series studying uh, the book of First Thessalonians, and so today we're going to be in chapter 2. Uh, last week, remember, we were online only, and we had some streaming issues, so sorry for that, but last week we did uh, the last half of uh, chapter one. And so if you missed that because of our streaming issues, it is online. Go make sure you listen to it so you can stay caught up with our study of the book. But this morning we're going to be starting in chapter two. And chapter two is going to require us to talk about the relationship between kind of teachers, shepherds, elders, pastors, whatever you want to call them, in the church and the people of the church. Because chapter two is all about Paul's relationship with this church in Thessalonica, him as a leader, and the rest of the people of the church. So we'll read that together in just a moment. Let me, real quick, quick recap. Remember, this book, 1 Thessalonians, is a letter that the Apostle Paul, along with Timothy and a guy named Silas, write to a church that they planted in the town of Thessalonica, okay, modern-day Greece, all right? And so they write this letter, and when they planted this church, it did not go well, all right? They were on a missionary journey, planting churches throughout the Roman Empire, and they were getting heavy persecution, not just by the Greeks, but also by the Jews. And it, you know, they were jailed in Philippi. They were ran out of town in Thessalonica, where they planted this church. They go to Berea, and they're actually doing pretty good in Berea, but the Thessalonica, Thessalonians come down to Berea and run them out of that town. They go to Athens, and that's a tough city to preach the gospel when they find themselves in Corinth. But through all of this journey, it has just been discouraging. And they've had a lot of persecution. They were jailed. They were beaten, all of those things. And so Paul assumes that, or I'm guessing he assumes. I don't know this for sure. I'm guessing he's assuming that the Thessalonians are probably struggling as the, the few believers that are there. And so he sends Timothy up to go check on them to make sure they're doing all right. You can read about this in Acts 17 and 18. And Timothy comes back and he's like, they are thriving. Like they are doing awesome as a church. And so Paul pens this letter, 1 Thessalonians, to encourage that church to basically say, I am just so thankful for your perseverance and your faith. That's what chapter one was all about. Like your perseverance and your faith and how your faith has reverberated throughout the entire region of Macedonia and Achaia. 
Paul encourages them with that. And so we'll continue in chapter 2, because as Paul continues this encouragement to the Thessalonians, he's going to express some gratitude about how the Thessalonians view their relationship with Paul as one of their leaders and others who are the leaders and shepherds of that particular church. So let's do this. Uh, Let me read our text today. It's going to be chapter 2, verse 1 to 16. I want to read the whole thing. And then we're going, to, we're going to kind of tear it apart. We're going to probably read through this two or three times this morning together so we can really understand what Paul is trying to say to this church. But let's just start. Let's read the entire passage together, and then we'll, then we'll dig in. So this is 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 16. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, That our coming to you, that's Timothy and Paul and Silas, our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, that was where they planted the church before, Acts chapter 16, you can go read it, they were jailed in Philippi. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, not to please you, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, down in Jerusalem. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them 
at last. That's a lot. I'm going to distill all of that down into two points. I have two points for you this morning. Both, I believe, will be a little controversial. All right, so we'll just embrace it. Embrace the controversy. See what it is. Just preaching, preaching chapter two. Here's the first point. We'll just get right into it. Per, point number one is this from our text. God has decided to communicate his word to you, the people of the church, people of God, through shepherds. God has decided to communicate his word to you through shepherds. Now, shepherd is a common image that we get in Scripture uh, where the leaders that God appoints over his people are considered shepherds, and then the people are sheep. And it's this idea of the shepherds are called to be gentle leaders who oversee the flock, uh, protect the flock, teach the flock, feed the flock, all of those things. That's the image that God gives for Jesus over his church and then his appointed leaders underneath the leadership and shepherding of Jesus himself. Now, when I teach this, and as we dig into it in chapter two here, I think we're all going to feel a little bit of tension. Just want to recognize that. All right, that's good. Feel it. We're going to deal with that tension. All right, don't worry. We'll get there, but let's build it for a second. But here's what I want us to see in chapter two is that God's design for how you and I receive, ingest the word of God is that you would have access to it, right? So you, you have it in a, in a book form or now an app form, right? You have it, you have access to it, but also that you would be taught his word through shepherds that God appoints to shepherd your soul, that when you hear the preaching of God's word, that you would actually receive that preaching as if it is God's word itself. And I get it. It's really easy for me to say right now. But this is a pattern that we see prescribed in Scripture. Romans 10 teaches us, how will we believe on the word of God and the gospel if we don't hear it? And how will we hear it if someone's not sent to preach it to us. Galatians chapter three talks about that your faith begun, your salvation came about through hearing with faith and you are sanctified. You continue to grow in your walk with Christ through hearing with faith. Uh, John Calvin said this once, check this out. I put it on the screen. He says, when a preacher who is duly called and appointed by God speaks, it is as if God himself were speaking through him. The word of God is not distinguished from the word of the prophet. God wishes to be heard through the voice of his ministers. All right, let, let, let me take it this far. Hold on, I, I brought a little prop with me. All right, this is a tennis ball. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. Let's say that this ball right here represents your faith. Let's say this ball right here represents what you believe about God. Or this ball represents your interpretation of the scriptures. 
and how you read the scriptures. Let's say that's what this ball represents. Now, we live in a culture that says, this is mine. I will be the one who decides what the Bible means to me. I will be the one who decides what should be applied and not be applied to me. I'll be the one who decides what I believe about God. So we, we live in a culture and we kind of operate our faith. I think all of us struggle with this in a way where we go, this right here is mine. This doesn't belong to anyone else. And I need to actually protect this from someone else. Manipulating this, abusing this, using this against me. And if we dig into scripture this morning, one of the things that we're going to see is that we were not called, at least in scripture, to carry this all on our own. That that this is actually a shared project. And that we are called to entrust this, not abandon it, entrust this to shepherds whom God has called to oversee and care for our souls. So we have access to God's word. This is important. This is in our hands, yes, but we also entrust it to the teaching of shepherds and leaders that God has himself appointed. Look at verse 13 with me. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, Paul says, we also thank God constantly for this, That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul is saying, I'm thankful, Thessalonians, that when we preached that you didn't receive this with skepticism, that, that you didn't receive this, you know, pretending like you were the resident biblical scholar that gets to decide what God's word says and what it doesn't say. You didn't receive this like that. You received what we preached as what it really is, the word of God itself. Paul's saying, I'm thankful that you weren't intimidated by the culture around you, both Greek and Jewish culture that was going to press against this idea of the gospel and that Jesus himself was the Messiah and he rose again from the dead, that you endured through the persecution. If you remember from chapter one, verse six, let me read this for you real quick. This is one of the things Paul said in chapter one. He says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Look look at this. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of, of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's saying, I'm thankful that even when you had reasons to reject what we were preaching because of outside pressures, you still heard it as the word of God. I'm thankful that you received the word of God, not like the people of Israel back in the days of the prophets, when God would appoint people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others and raise them up and say, I have a word that I want you to go proclaim to my people. And he would say things to his prophets like Jeremiah, by the way, they're not gonna listen to you. 
because they don't want to hear what my word has to say. And Paul's like, I'm thankful that you received this and you weren't like the people of Israel back in the days of the prophets. You received it as the word of God itself. You entrusted this to us. And I'm thankful. Now, obviously, if this is God's design, then what that means is that the shepherds themselves must be faithful to teach God's word and not their own word. Look at verses one to seven with me one more time. Chapter two, Paul says, for you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. They had every reason not to teach this stuff. So he's saying, you know our motives. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity. We've done the work. We've had shepherds ourselves who has taught us the word of God. Remember I told you two weeks ago, Paul had a home church, Antioch. He had shepherds that he submitted to who taught him his words, the word of God or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man. We're not doing this to please you, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Paul's saying, listen, our motive in bringing the word of God to you was not to please you, was not to get your applause, but it was to please God himself. It was to represent God himself. And if that is our motive, then what that does is it frees us to teach what God's word says, even though there's gonna be lots of people who don't like what God's word says. But if our motive is to create a platform, if our motive is to enrich ourselves, if our motive is to just try to tick up as many subscribers as we can on YouTube or Instagram and then monetize that, right, and enrich ourselves, if that's it, then we will preach the things that you want to hear. But Paul is passionate about this. No, we don't teach the things you want to hear. We teach what God's word says. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul's talking about this. He says this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, the ministry of preaching, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning inside of preaching or to tamper, change, adjust with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth. What is that? Open. Here it is. This is what God's word says. By open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight 
of God. If we want to build a platform or enrich ourselves or have a pretext of greed through preaching, then we must change God's word, or we at least must filter it through an ideology. And the reality is the faithful preaching of God's word is going to press against every single one of us in different ways. The faithful preaching of God's word is going to attack our biases. The faithful preaching of God's word is going to make Republicans mad and Democrats mad. The faithful preaching of God's word is going to disagree with us. There will be things that we disagree with, and we're going to have to go, well, huh, God's word is saying something, and yet I say something else. Who's going to win? The reason that God decided to communicate his word to us in this way is because this, we need help. We can't carry this on our own. Our hearts are way too deceitful to carry this by ourselves. If we try to carry this all by ourselves, there are ways in which our heart will ignore stuff in here and we don't even realize it. There are ways in which our hearts will say, nope, that doesn't apply to me. Or nope, that's now too archaic. Or nope, now, ah, you know, God's changed his mind in ways we don't even realize. We need help when it comes to receiving the word of God. Isaiah chapter 66, verse two says this, that God is looking over the world. He's looking for his people who are his true followers. And he goes, this is who I am looking for. I'm looking for those who are humble, contrite in spirit, and tremble at my word. That that's their posture to God's word, trembling. Meaning, I'm gonna be really careful that I don't manipulate this. Now that goes for the hearer and the preacher, right? Paul says, we didn't come to you with error or impurity, right? There was rigor for Paul and other pastors, elders, when it came to teaching God's word that God takes very seriously. And that's one of the reasons why here at, at Grace Hill Church, that we believe in a plurality of leadership and we believe in full parity inside that leadership. Well, we have a board of pastor, elder, shepherds, all the same, synonymous terms, of people who oversee the ministry of the preaching of the word here at this church. I'm not the chief interpreter of God's word. I just speak in the microphone the most. That's really all I do in relationship with the rest of that group. Because we believe that there needs to be accountability. We believe that motive matters. We believe that there must not be error or impurity in the teaching and preaching of our word. But even in that, I get it. You might be going, Alan, I have all kinds of red flags up in the air right now. I hear what you're saying, but I've got all kinds of red flags because I don't know if I can entrust this to anybody else. I've seen way too many examples of abuse and manipulation or 
bad motives when it comes to entrusting this to other leaders. I get it. Let me give you the, the, the greatest example in all of human history, right? The Reformation. Right before the Reformation, you had the Catholic Church that dominated Christendom at the time. And the Word of God was only in Latin. And the common man couldn't read Latin or really understand Latin at the time. And so really the leaders of the church could go largely unchecked, right? So they start teaching things like indulgences, right? Well, I'll just sell you salvation. Oh, you want salvation? Here, I'm trying to build this castle over here, so I'll just sell that to you for this sell of money, right? Then what happened, right? Printy press gets invented and the Bible gets translated into uh, the language of the people, into the vernacular of the people. And so what happened? People started going, wait, you can't say that. What, what you just said's not in here, that sparked the Reformation. Yeah, there's leaders who rose up and led that entire movement, but what sparked it was the word of God got into the hands of the people. So I get it. We should have some red flags. Wait, you just want me to blindly trust leaders in the way that they preach, and you want me to blindly trust them with this. Point number two. Hopefully it'll relieve some of the tension. Point number two is this. This will require relational proximity with your shepherds. This will, entrusting this to leaders, will require relational proximity with your shepherds. Look at verses 8 to 12 with me. Paul says, so being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves. What was Paul saying here? He's saying, listen, my relationship with you is not just this. It's not just I get to be preacher, you get to be hearer. See you next Sunday. He goes, no, I, I shared life with you. I shared a dinner table with you. I've, I've slept in the guest room of some of your houses. We're friends. We do fun things together. And yes, I get the distinct honor and privilege and calling from God to teach you God's word. We shared our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Verse nine, for you remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I believe this right here is a description of the ideal relationship between shepherds and the people that they are called to lead and teach God's word. And you can see the proximity that exists in this relationship. There's proximity here so that the people of God could actually witness, experience, see for themselves the conduct of their leaders so that they themselves could say, no, I know him. I know what his motives are. Yeah, I've seen how he treats his wife. I've seen him in hard situations and easy ones. I've seen him be angry before. 
I have a a witness to the way they live their lives. So that's proximity. And the proximity also is that the, the shepherds themselves know specifically how to apply God's word to the lives of their hearers. So let's just break those two things down. Verse 9 and 10, again, one more time, Paul says, For you remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. The people themselves could witness the motives and the holiness of their shepherds. And the reality is this, you should expect your shepherds to live as examples in regards to holiness and righteousness. Not perfection, we won't achieve that. Not that we won't ask for the forgiveness of our sins. You should expect your leaders to be an example in that way. And that is going to require proximity and access so that you can be a witness of that. We need to be in each other's lives. But then go to verses 11 and 12 where it says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And so your shepherds need access and proximity to you so that we know how to specifically teach you God's word. Did you see those those words he used? He says, we exhorted you, encouraged you, and charged you. Those three words right there kind of encapsulate everything. Uh, it, it, It means that we took God's word and we were your cheerleaders, And we tried to to pump you up and and, and help you persevere and encourage you and, and lift your spirits and lift your gaze and tell you that God loves you and he cares for you. It also means that we charged you, you know, we like, we, we, we got onto you a little bit. We challenged you. We admonished. We even rebuked you when we saw you wandering away from the truth. Those words encapsulate the, the whole the whole spectrum of ways that we could use God's word to encourage and spark and grow your faith. See, God's desire is not that you would hear the word of God generally, you know, in a good sermon or something like that, and then take what you want and leave what you want. God's desire for you is not that you would come and you would have this, your faith, what you believe about God, your interpretation of the Bible. You would hear a general word. Okay, I like this. I didn't like that. I'll apply what I want, and then I'm going to take it and go away. That's not God's desire for you. You won't grow in that particular way. No, God's desire is that a shepherd would apply God's word specifically to you, specifically to your marriage, specifically to the situation that you're walking through right now, specifically to your grief, specifically to the areas where you're feeling temptation to sin, specifically. And listen, we don't always like that. Like, whoa, whoa, hold on, you're getting a little too close. But that's the exact point, proximity, is what is required. This is why I believe that things like listening to sermons on YouTube or podcasts, they're fantastic. They're great. I do it all the time. 
I have lots of preachers that I like to listen to. I'm always listening to a podcast. But I don't believe you should receive it as God's word. You don't know them and they don't know you. And here's what happens is we find a preacher that we really like and they're awesome and they're funny and they connect with me. And I go, man, he gets to have this. And then they fail. And you go, can I even believe in God anymore? If he, you didn't know him. You're not a witness to his life. You're not a witness to the way that he pastors his congregation. You're a witness to what he puts out online. And he doesn't know you. He doesn't know what you're going through. He doesn't know where you need to be encouraged. He doesn't know where you need to be challenged. So is it helpful to use those things to build our faith? Of course, but they're supplemental. But we are called to actually take what our shepherds say as God's word to us. If it's done with the right motives and it's done with accuracy and rigor to teach you God's word and if there's proximity there so that that person can speak to you what God needs to say to you and then you can receive it knowing that you know them, you trust what they have to say because you can be a witness to their life. That's how God has designed this to work. And man, we just don't live that, do we? That's just really scary to share this, to make this a shared project. It's also why I believe that you can't follow Jesus alone. It's just there's no context in the Bible of of you taking your Bible and doing your quiet times and listening to your podcast and going to YouTube and journaling a lot and studying a lot. I mean, you can grow in a lot of knowledge that way, and that's great. It's fantastic. But you won't grow in your faith. You won't grow in your perseverance. You won't grow in your holiness because you can't do those things alone. It requires proximity to shepherds and the body of Christ. That's by God's design. And this is why Paul is saying, I'm so thankful, Thessalonians, that you received God's word in the way that you did and that you trusted us with it. Because Paul's saying, I'm bearing witness to how that is changing you. I'm bearing witness to how that faith is reverberating out to other towns. I'm bearing witness to how that is causing you to persevere in the midst of incredible persecution and conflict. Like I said, you will not grow spiritually in isolation. You might grow in your knowledge. It's great. But you will not grow in your spiritual life You will not grow in perseverance. You will not grow in holiness, in isolation. You need relational proximity with your shepherds in the body of Christ. Paul ends this section, verses 14 to 16. He says, for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, the first churches in Jerusalem. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen, the Greeks, as they did from the Jews. You were being heavily persecuted for your faith. The Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. The Jews who rejected what God's word 
was saying, who rejected the prophets, who rejected the people that God sent to proclaim the word of God. They rejected all of that. And when they did that, they said, uh, verse 16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. And here's essentially what Paul is saying in this last section. It's just this. Because this is a shared project to the Thessalonians, because they're receiving the word of God, because they don't have an attitude of, I will decide what this means to me and what it doesn't mean to me, they're persevering in the midst of incredible conflict, in the midst of credible persecution. There is a stability, there is a joy, and there is an ever-growing aspect to their faith because of how they receive the word of God. What creates a resilient, joyful faith? A resilient, joyful faith? It's realizing that this, our faith, this is a shared project. It is a communal, collective thing, not an individual thing. That's what creates a resilient joyful faith. And that's why at Grace Hill Church, our mission is to be a diverse community that follows Jesus, loves people, and is safe to be known because we believe that in order for you to grow, in order for you to grow in your joy, in order for you to grow in your knowledge of God, in order for you to grow in your holiness, in your obedience, in your repentance, in all of those things, in your perseverance, we believe that you need to be known. And you need to know others and your leaders. It's our whole strategy here at Grace Hill Church. So I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to lean in to your faith being a shared project and to reject the idea and the lie that it's an individual one. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for your word. And I'm thankful for how your word encourages us and instructs us and, quite frankly, causes us to talk about topics that maybe sometimes we wouldn't talk about. That maybe we would sometimes decide to avoid because it might be awkward to talk about it. But we're thankful that your word instructs us in all of life and practice. And God, I pray specifically for Grace Hill Church that we would be a church that goes upstream to culture. That that we would be a people who are actually willing to invite other people in when it comes to our faith and our life instead of keeping it all to ourselves. That that we would be a people, like Isaiah 66.2 says, that are humble, contrite in spirit, and tremble at your word. So God, I pray for the leaders of Grace Hill, myself and the other pastors and elders, that God, we would be faithful to teach God's word, that we would be humble and open to correction where need be, that we would allow ourselves and our lives to be open so that the people of the church can have access and proximity so that we're not a mystery but that people can actually witness the way that we live our lives. 
And I pray for the people of Grace Hill Church, all of us, God, that we would be people who joyfully and humbly sit under the preaching of the word. That includes me and all the other shepherds as well. And that where the word of God presses against our desires, when it presses against our biases, our ideologies, or whatever else, that our response wouldn't be to close up. Our response wouldn't be to, well, we'll go find the the preacher or go find the church or go find the resource that tells me what I want to hear. But the response would be to lean in, to wrestle, to learn, to be humble. I pray, God, that we would be a community that would grow together in our submission and in our love of your word. And that as a result, God, we would persevere no matter what may come in our lives, whether it is personal struggles, whether it is grief that we're facing, or whether it's persecution itself that we might experience in this culture, that we would persevere because we're not alone. We don't have to follow you alone, Jesus. You've actually expressly commanded us not to. God, help us to find great solace and joy and rest in that. In Christ's name, amen.